This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. There are some plans being made by Museum London, and they seem to deal with 100 years from now. And that should have us all intrigued. What do they know that we don't know? Do they have, have they found the Fountain of Youth? Is Ponce de Leon sitting in it? Joining us right now is the Curator of Regional History at Museum London, Amber Lord Langston. Amber, thank you so much for taking some time for us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So a hundred years from now, I know you're kind of focused in on kind of the space in between as well, but what got you thinking about a hundred years from now? Well, I was really hoping to get people focused on a particular question. So, and in this instance, um, a, a particular group of people for now. So right now we're asking, uh, in partnership with the London Health Sciences uh, uh, Hospital, that um, we ask staff to think about this one very important question. If you were to see an exhibition 100 years from now about the pandemic, what would be the one object you want people to see about your experience of the pandemic as somebody who works at LHSC? What a fantastic question. I did not originate it. A friend of mine in Ottawa shared it with me, and I thought it was a genius question, too. And so I don't know the originator of the question, but I'm just going to put it out there that it wasn't me, but I recognized that it was fabulous, so I stole it. So you're partnering up with London Health Sciences Centre, and yeah, what, what would symbolize what we have been going through, the good, the bad, and the otherwise? Okay, what are you expecting from this, or do you even know? I, you know what, I don't know. I don't want to assume what people are going to consider to have been extremely important to their experience. Uh, so we're asking people to take a photograph of the object that they identify, and I just want to emphasize that it's objects. We're, we're not an archive, so we're not looking to get digital material. We're not looking for um, paper much except for in a supporting role. We are really looking for the three-dimensional object that illustrates the experience of the pandemic for the person making the offer or making the suggestion. And so it could be a a piece of uh, painted rock with some beautiful comment on it of support for an essential worker. It could be a sign that somebody put up in their yard to to, to just give them a feeling of, of accomplishment. It could be a garment they never got to wear. It could be a piece of jewelry. I really wouldn't even want to say. I, I think everybody will have a different thing that is really significant to them. And so I'm, I'm putting the challenge out there to, to, to these workers. And I really want to hear from all workers. So I'm hoping to hear from administrators, from doctors, from nurses, from um, cleaners, from uh, cafeteria workers. I really want to get a full experience of what it was like to be a frontline worker at the hospital during these past months. Amber Lloyd Langston joining us, curator of regional history. I think all of us in going through this pandemic 
have certainly seen pictures, and there aren't very many of them, but pictures that go back a hundred years, go back to what they were dealing with a hundred years ago, and how wild was it to see kids lined up wearing masks, or how wild was it to see some of the pieces of paper that were being circulated with instructions on what to do during that particular outbreak, and we're going to be able to create that. That's right, and I'm so glad you referenced what happened 100 years ago, because one thing, well, there's a number of areas where Museum London does not have uh, items, of course, but we don't have anything for that pandemic. We have no artifacts about that pandemic, and it's a killer. I've looked, I've looked and hunted through our collection thinking there has to be something. Surely somebody collected something, but no. Uh, and, and you asked about what kind of objects and me saying I, I can't make any assumptions of what they might be, but the Woodstock Museum, I'm pretty sure it's them, the, the pandemic artifact they have, just to give a clue for what it could be, for them, it, it's, it's a regular citizen and it's from the Spanish flu. It's a wedding gown that a poor girl never got to wear because she died before her wedding. Oh, wow. Oh, I know, right? So when you think about what a pandemic artifact could be, can you, the story around that is so incredibly powerful. What would seem to be just a plain old, well, I mean, they're never just plain old, but a wedding gown that could be any story. When you hear the story, it makes you do a double and a triple take on that piece. And it's that story that I'm looking for. It could be a very mundane artifact, but the story is going to be what makes it. I mean, I practically burst into tears talking about that gown. So it's it's that kind of emotion that these are going to generate if we get the good stories that go with. So I'm, I'm challenging people to really think about what do they want to share, what really mattered. Because this isn't about, well, here's the first mask I wore. Here's my favorite mask from the pandemic, although I'm, I'm sure it could be. But, yeah, to find stories like that, and you know that those stories are out there, because hopefully in 100 years we do have people looking back, and hopefully they don't have to go through what either we went through or what happened 100 years ago with the Spanish flu and what they went through. But learning that history, finding those stories. Okay, so if anybody is connected to London Health Sciences Centre and happens to be listening now or happens to be reading at globalnews.ca, what would they do in taking a picture and getting it to you? Take us through that process, Amber. I can do that. So what is going to be happening is that there is going to be an announcement issued by the, the PR department at LHSC. They're going to be just outlining everything that we've just discussed about what we're looking for. And then people are going to be given contact information for me, actually. My, my email address will be provided to staff. And so I'll be receiving, I hope, soon... Uh, some photographs and those stories that I will then review. Now, Museum London doesn't have unlimited resources in terms of uh, ability to catalog everything or even to house everything. So I am going to have to make some hard choices, but uh, I can't make choices unless things are offered. So ultimately, we're hoping to acquire something along the lines of 25 or so pieces. Because again, we've got to, we've got to, 
manage the volume of whatever we acquire. And, and this is our first outreach, right? So hopefully we'll be reaching out to other communities as well. But we're, we're starting with this and, and, and see how this proceeds and we'll see how this process works and know whether it's, it's, it's a good one or not. And then we can decide what to do. But uh, LHS, uh, LHSC staff will get my email and I will look forward to hearing from them. Well, we'll have to check back and see what you start to receive in just a little while because it's fascinating to know what people will attribute. How many people will say, here's a picture of the cat I rescued or the dog I rescued Mm -hmm. in order to, you know, spend some time at home and have something to do. I'm sure those will be there. So I imagine so, but you know what? I'm I'm just going to redirect just a tiny bit, if I might. I would also then ask to have the first collar that that little animal wore, right? Because we're going for the object, not the image. The image could accompany, but it would be the object. So maybe it's the food dish. Maybe it's a worn-out toy. Maybe it's a little collar. It's something like that, but it would be the object that would be the key with with the supporting uh, story and image to go with. Now you've got us thinking, okay, that's right. that's the way that we've got to train our minds. So yes. the object that will help to tell the story of this pandemic 100 years from now. Amber, okay. it is a phenomenal question, and it's a tremendous undertaking. Thank you for, for putting it into motion, and uh, here's hoping that you get all that you are looking for and more. Thank you so much, and maybe we will get to talk about it again, which would be lovely. Let's do that. We'll wait a couple oh, of months. Good. We'll give you a call. Sounds good. All right. All right. Thank you. Take care and be safe. You too. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. That's Amber Lloyd Langston, Curator of Regional History at Museum London. Because how key will that be? We have a number of pictures that feel like they're circulating from 100 years ago. Not really. Not really. There's one, there's baseball where you've got either the, I think it's the catcher or the umpire is wearing a mask. You've got the little kids in line. You've probably seen that one somewhere shared on social media. We want to look at another thing as we continue on on London Live, and that is interest rates, and that is real estate. So... When we look at interest rates, we know that the Bank of Canada is holding the rate at where it sits right now, that there is talk that maybe late next year we might see a change to it, but at the moment, no change to it. So we'll touch on that in just a minute. And then the idea that real estate continues to climb and has hit prices where if you don't own property in a market... Think about southwestern Ontario even a few years ago. We were not necessarily anywhere close to where we are now. We've seen property values spike, not rise, but spike. So is there a bubble? People have asked that question about real estate for so long. Well, it's one of the things we can talk about with our next guest. Benjamin Tal joins us, Deputy Chief Economist of CIBC World Markets. Benjamin, thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Can we, before we get to real estate, can we get your thoughts on holding interest rates at where they sit right now? What did you make of the move? Yes, no surprise. The Bank of Canada decided not to move. No surprise whatsoever. The Bank of Canada was very dovish, actually, basically telling the market, relax. We are not going to touch interest rates until 2023. The hidden agenda here is basically to make sure that long-term interest rates 
are not rising. Uh, we know that the economy is going to be relatively strong in the second half of the year. We know that inflation is showing its face. And I think that the Bank of Canada eventually will have to start uh, raising interest rates earlier than what they are telling us. But for now, they want to make sure that the market is not too nervous about um, long-term interest rates and inflation. So in looking as far ahead as 2023, what does that bring to us? Well, we have two issues here. One is short-term rates that the Bank of Canada can control, and the other is long-term rates, like the five-year rate, that the Bank of Canada cannot control. As we have seen in both cases, Canada and the U.S., uh, the five-year rate, the 10-year rate are starting to rise because there is a fear of inflation. Listen, in the second half of the year, the economy will rebound in a very significant way. We are talking about 5 6 7% GDP growth in the second half of the year, in the U.S., they are injecting close to $2 trillion into the economy. That's 10% of the economy. All this will be inflationary, so inflation will start rising, and the bond, the bond market is getting a bit nervous, and that's why long-term interest rates like the 5-year rate, the 10-year rates are starting to rise. The Bank of Canada and the Fed are telling you, listen, we don't want you to rise too much. We will keep our rates low in order to make sure that there is a cap to long-term interest rates. That's the impact. And that's the story that the market is struggling with now. There is a, basically a battle between the market and the Bank of Canada. We have seen interest rates relatively low for a long, long time now. Do you think we have to prepare ourselves for a world when we're not in the 1%, 2%, even 3% when we're talking about interest rates that are much higher than that? Uh, the short answer is no. I don't think that interest rates will be rising in a very significant way. But you know what? You don't need them to rise significantly to slow down the housing market because interest rates are very, very low to start with. Um, monetary policy is asymmetrical. When you cut interest rates, when interest rates are very low to start with, it's not very powerful. But when you start raising interest rates, when interest rates are very low, every basis point counts. We have a, we have a generation of Canadians that never experienced high or even rising interest rates. For them, those extremely low mortgage rates, that's the norm. So if you start raising them, even by 50 basis points, 75, 100 basis points, that's almost doubling your monthly payments on your mortgage. So when interest rates are very low, any, every basis point counts. And I think that's where it's very important to understand. It's not the level of interest rates, it's, it's the speed at which they will be rising. Yeah, and you think about what that might do, you look at the price of real estate that we're going to be talking about right now, who could actually take their mortgage and say, oh yeah, if they rise and, and I have to kind of double my payment, no problem. I don't think too many people would be in the no problem category, do you? Yes, that's the issue. I believe that when interest rates start rising, the market will slow and it will be a very healthy uh, slowing. However, remember, there is something called B20 namely the stress test that uh, the government is uh, imposing on um, uh, mortgage borrowers. So in order to qualify for a mortgage now, you don't, uh, they don't qualify you on your interest rate. They qualify you on a rate that is much higher. In fact, you are being qualified at 479%. That's very, very high, relatively speaking, relative to where the five-year rate is now. Our, the question is, why so many people can pass this test? And the answer is the nature of this crisis. All the jobs lost during this recession, not some, all, were low-paying jobs. In fact, high-paying jobs, their number went up by 350,000 positions. So you have two things. One, the people that lost their jobs, most of them were renters, not home buyers. That's one thing. 
The other, more important, is that a very large segment of the population was untouched financially by this crisis. In fact, they are doing better. Their income is rising, their spending went down, and interest rates are in the basement. That's the, exactly the opportunity they were looking for, and that's exactly what we are seeing in the market now. What a formula. We're talking with Benjamin Tell, Deputy Chief Economist of CIBC World Markets. So when you take that, when you take the idea that you have anyone who may have had a, a higher paying job who did own a home and the fact that they haven't really been touched a lot by this pandemic from a financial standpoint and interest rates are low. Is that why we continue to see housing prices rise? Well, the number one story is that demand is still relatively strong. Supply is not so strong for two reasons. First, we have a structural issue with supply. There's simply not enough supply in the city. That's one thing. The other is that in the resale market, we see a situation in which many potential sellers are waiting because they don't want to really list their house during a pandemic. It's a headache. Yeah. So who wants that? So you basically wait and you wait until we have a vaccine and then you will free this uh, supply. So demand is there, but the supply is not there. That's another reason why prices are rising. So it's a very interesting market. So if we do see maybe a, a rapid change of that supply and demand, could we then see an actual settling back of real estate values? I mean, it's, it's rare that it would happen. We keep thinking maybe it will. What do you see in, in the crystal ball that you can look into? Yes, I think that uh, when... Uh... Uh, on the other side of this madness, uh, there will be a bit more supply, there will be more listing. That will not change the whole market uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but it will ease the upward pressure on prices. Uh, that's one thing. The other is that there is such thing as a resistance level. Namely, prices went up so much, especially for detached uh, housing, the low-rise segment of the market. At one point, people say, you know what, I simply cannot afford it. And with the vaccine, the condo market all of a sudden will become more attractive because it is more affordable. So I believe that the second wave of uh, the improvement in the housing market, especially in the second half of the year into 2022, would be actually the condo space when people go back to the cities. Interesting. Anything else that you foresee that we should keep an eye out for? Yes, I think that this uh, trend of people from Toronto for two hours because they can buy a detached house, a large house, and they will be working from home forever. This trend was there before the crisis and was accelerated during the recession. I suggest that this trend will slow down because, uh, believe me, people will be going back to the office. Many companies will be asking their employees to come back to the office. It will be a different model. It will be maybe three or four days a week, but you will be back in the office. That's one thing. The other is that you bought a house in Barrie, two hours from Toronto, assuming that you will be working from home forever. That's true maybe for your current employer. What about your future employer? Maybe they are not happy with that. So all of a sudden, that can impact a, a job market mobility. So it's a much more complex situation when we go back to normal so the trend will continue, but it will slow down notably. And that's why I believe that you will see more people coming back, returning to the cities. 
Wow. Well, interest rates remaining low for a while, and thank you for explaining the road ahead in that way and certainly the road ahead in real estate because this area in southwestern Ontario has certainly benefited from individuals selling their homes in Toronto. I think we all start to shake our heads and say, "Who who's buying all of these houses? Because at the other end, Benjamin, somebody has to be buying these for a million dollars or $1.1 million in some cases and then taking the money and, and moving outside the city to Barrie, to southwestern Ontario. Those buyers, they're still active in the market? Absolutely. They are in the market. Uh, we have seen a significant acceleration uh, in their number. Uh, the activity went up dramatically. I believe it will slow down. And I think it will be okay because in some of those pockets, prices went up way too quickly you reach a point in which those places will be unaffordable to their citizens. That's not a very smart thing. I suggest that some people from Toronto will be buying those uh, units because they're still, still cheap relative to Toronto, but then they will have to find a place to stay in Toronto during the work week. So you will see people renting condos or uh, apartments or buying condos. So it's going to be a very interesting story, but I believe that the trend that we have seen during the crisis, people moving, to a remote, uh, small uh, areas, uh, that will slow down notably in the next year or so. Benjamin, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for the time today. A pleasure. Thank you. That's Benjamin Tal, Deputy Chief Economist of CIBC World Markets on interest rates, which are being held firm and, as he says, don't expect much change before 2023 and don't expect to see Everybody always worries about what we saw early 80s where you had some big numbers, some big double-digit interest numbers, and if that were to happen, it, well, it couldn't happen. People would be walking away from their homes left and right, as, as Benjamin kind of outlined it. But the fact that real estate prices could stay where they are, continue to rise, yeah, that's there because of the fact that you haven't seen high-income earners affected all that much by the pandemic in his own. We want to delve into something that is a very serious topic right now. And it's something that you have to wonder where we're headed with medically assisted dying. And the reason being, it's something that is a conversation now. You have DNRs that a lot of people will put into their wills, which is do not resuscitate. We have seen examples even locally of medically assisted dying. And it's something that Bill C-7 is certainly touching on. It amends Canada's existing law on medical assistance in dying. There was a 2019 Quebec Superior Court ruling and it looked at the fact that an individual, quote, must face a reasonably foreseeable death before seeking medical assistance in dying. And there are a number of voices that are speaking out about this. And we're able to speak with one of those voices right now simply because this is a difficult topic, and it is one that persons with disabilities certainly have a voice in. 
because of concerns that exist. Quinn Lawrence is the community organizer with Dignity Denied and joins us now. Quinn, thanks so much for being here. How is your day going? Not too bad. I'm just in an appointment at the hospital, actually, so I'm trying to get it a little quieter here before we're chatting, and I should have Don't worry about that. Shortly. <laughs> you're, you're in a fine, fine place, and uh, awesome. if things go on in the background, it's, hey, it's, it's fun for us to listen to as well. So <laughs> let's go over Bill C-7 and the concerns that do exist among advocates for anyone with a disability. What is it that concerns about Bill C-7 and what it suggests? So Bill C-7 creates this second track for accessing, as you said, medical assistance in dying or made. And that second track, a lot of politicians <laughs> just understand that Makes people. We may be losing Quinn. Quinn, can you hear us all right? Because we're we're losing you just a little bit. We used to be able to hear what was going on in the background. Now we're having trouble hearing anything at at all. Uh, Can you hear us now? I can hear you. Okay. You hear me. Yes, that it was cutting out just a little bit. So, so let's try that okay. just one more time. When we talk about Bill C seven and the concerns that do exist for persons with disabilities, what do we focus in on? Um, so, as I was saying, um, medical assistance in dying, Bill C fourteen, with the addition of C seven, there is a second track made available to disabled people and disabled people only. Um, the the phrasing that's used in the bill, I can't quote it directly, but it basically um, says that people with irremediable, um, intractable conditions, so untreatable or um, things caused um, are now available. Like, um, what's the word I want here? Um, they're now qualifiable for made under the second track. And that is part of the disability community. Those are our people. I mean, that's me. That's many of my friends. Our concern with that second track is that disabled people have not been given adequate support to live our lives fulfilled in community. Um, A lot of us live in poverty. A lot of us live in long-term care facilities that don't meet our needs are um, abusive or neglectful because they are either underfunded or, in many of our opinions, are just not a good system at all. Um, long-term care facilities just make abuse possible in many different ways. So those are some of the main concerns with Bill C-7 is that it's giving this right to death before we feel we've been given an adequate right to a fulfilling life. We don't feel that we've been supported by any kind of government, any kind of legislature, um, and that needs to change first in order for our rights to not be infringed upon with this new bill. Quinn Lawrence joining us, community organizer with Dignity Denied, as we look at some concerns 
that persons with disabilities have when it comes to medically or medical assistance in dying, which is part of the amendments that Bill C-7 would bring in. It would amend Canada's existing law on medical assistance in dying. And so when when you're talking about yourself, when you're talking about your friends, when you're talking about people you have been able to speak with, the idea that the medical assistance in dying would exist, what what does that present? Um, do you mean in terms of what we would face if that becomes um, ratified? Yes. So our one of our biggest concerns is that as disabled people, and for many of us, we are multiply marginalized disabled people. A lot of us are people of color, black, indigenous folks. I myself am trans. Um, I'm queer. We already face so much medical neglect. We face coercion. We face different kinds of abuse, both from the medical system and within our own lives. Um, and with all of these things, um, we we know that this bill will give more room for um, that kind of harm to happen. It already happens. Um, Monica Gardner last night was speaking on how she went to a hospital. I don't know in what province, but she did go to the hospital um, with a broken arm, which is a pretty like standard procedure um, condition for many different people, disabled or not. Um, but instead of just getting treatment, um, being supported, asking if she needed kind of a support person, a family member to come sit with her, um, she was offered um, DNR and was told she could just fly away, which is, you know, a metaphor for dying. You know, you can let go. Um, that's inappropriate from a healthcare professional um, at any time, but especially if you're in there for treatment for a broken arm. Wow. I mean, that's that's a story that, that kind of stuns you to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of non-disabled people and people who don't necessarily have close, intimate relationships with um, disabled people don't realize that these are so everyday for us. Like when I heard Monica talking about that last night, I was upset. Of course, that shouldn't happen to anyone. But it resonated with me. I've been through similar situations, of course. Um, and most of my friends have been as well, if they get health care at all. So the idea is somebody is actually suggesting to you that, hey, you could, in this case, fly away just and. And, and that is obviously put into somebody's head. Exactly, exactly. And um, a lot of people will say, well, that's illegal. Doctors are not allowed to do that. Um, there are laws against that. Yes, people do illegal things all the time. <laughs> um, they're not supposed to, of course. But that doesn't change the reality that this is what we face anyways. And there's very little recourse for us to seek any kind of um, remedy against that, any kind of legal recourse or, you know, even within the, the hospital. Um, it's A, it's a doctor's word against the patient. And often multiply marginalized disabled people aren't going to be believed. And B, like the other doctors do it too. 
it's not just one doctor doing these things. Other doctors are doing this as well. Quinn Lawrence joining us, community organizer with Dignity Denied. How much of a concern might there be as well that if you are in a situation where maybe you're you're feeling like you have no other options, that all of a sudden you look and say, well, you know, if this passes through and you can get medical assistance in dying, maybe that's the way I'm just going to go. How much of a concern is there that that attitude could become, you know, one that exists? I mean, it's, it's not a concern so much as a reality. Um, we already have seen cases where people have been living in deep poverty or they have been living in abusive long-term care facilities and they already are doing this. Um, this is already a situation that happens even without C7 added. It's already a concern under C14. So, um, yeah, it's, as I said, it's less of a concern and more of a pressing reality on the disabled community. Quinn, one last thing, and that is the disability filibuster that started the week. Anything come from that at this point? Um, I am not sure because I've been so busy with the filibuster. I haven't been able to check all of the pol- political news. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard through the grapevine that it's a possibility that it won't be voted on today. Um, which would be really fantastic. Um, today, I think, was the only day on the schedule to even talk about C7, and there was a proposed time allotment um, against debate from the Bloc Québécois. Um, so that was a real concern for us. And if it's true that um, that hasn't happened and the vote won't be happening, then I really hope that more people will get involved with the filibuster and um, and we can really raise some some awareness and also some action because awareness is nothing without some action put to it um, against this bill. Quinn, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you as well. That's Quinn Lawrence, community organizer with Dignity Denied. As we talk about Bill C-7, will it be voted on today? Will it not? It deals with medical assistance in dying. We're going to take this conversation in another direction. We're talking about Bill C-7, which amends a little bit about Canada's laws on medical assistance in dying. And we're trying to look at this from as many perspectives as we can. We're very pleased to have with us Helen Long, who's the CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada. Helen, thanks so much for being here. How's your day going? Hey, Mike, it's good. Thanks for having me. When you give the thoughts of of what you see from Bill C-7, how do you interpret what this legislation would allow? Yeah, I think from our perspective, Bill C-7, I think you have to go back to what, what you know, where did the bill come from? So the bill is a direct result of the Trushan decision. And Trushan was a court case uh, initiated by two individuals with disabilities so that they could access their right to medically assisted dying. Um, you know, I think what the bill attempts to do is to give those with a disability the same rights as anyone else who has a grievous and irremediable medical condition, the right to choose in this an assisted death at a time when the suffering becomes intolerable. Um, so, you know, for us, it's really about case-by-case assessment. It's about compassion for individuals who are suffering. And it's about having that right uh, that every Canadian ch- 
should have from a constitutional perspective. We have things that, because no individual situation is ever the same, we have things that, that could be in play or not in play. It would be very easy if someone has their wishes laid out saying, this is what I want, this is how I want it, there you go. But that's that's not always the case. How careful do we have to be with that sort of thing as we look at medically assistant or medical assistance in dying? Well, I mean, I think I think we should always be careful. These are, are important, critical, you know, this is a decision about ending a life. Um, so it should always be very important. There are some safeguards along the way to support that. You know, there's a group of clinicians, those who provide an assessment who are, you know, I would say very committed and dedicated and very careful and who follow processes established by their association um, to ensure that they are giving enough thought and, and care and, you know, involving the individual as much as they possibly can in that discussion. Um, you know, it, it, obviously these are critical, important decisions, but that doesn't negate a person's right to make that choice. Uh, it just means that it needs to be a thoughtful, careful process. We're talking with Helen Long, CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada. Helen, we did just speak with a representative from Dignity Denied, and, and there are concerns from their perspective that persons with disabilities may wind up saying, well, you know, this this is my only option, or may be in some way encouraged to look at it as an option when otherwise they wouldn't. Is that something you think has been considered enough uh, I think it's been considered. I mean, I think, again, this is a process that's initiated by an individual. So there's no encouraging someone or signing up on someone else's behalf. Um, it's about an individual choice. You, you said the words case by case or special cases. And again, you know, it's a case by case assessment. So we need to look at every case um, individually. MADE is not a solution for any other lack of supports that exist. So, you know, certainly every Canadian should have the ability and the right to have the supports they need, whether those are social services supports or disability supports, income supports. All of those are things that Canadians should be able to access. And MADE is not a solution to those. And the process should eliminate, um, you know, anyone who says, well, I, I just don't have enough, so I don't want to go on. That, that's not the criteria for made, and that should be uh, vetted out through the process that the clinician goes through. Helen, as a final question, this topic is such a difficult one, but it's one that has been out there for a while. Conversations have taken place. How are those conversations changing from, say, five, ten years ago to now? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly since medical assistance in dying became legal in uh, 2016, I think, you know, society has shifted. We're seeing more interest, certainly, um, in the process and in end-of-life choice, whatever that looks like. And I think, you know, we've done some polling very recently. Uh, Canadians are consistently supportive across the board. They're supportive, 87% uh, of the original decision to allow medical assistance in dying. Seven out of 10 Canadians support the current um, amendment in C7 that will allow for that removal of the reasonably foreseeable clause. So I think, you know, it, it's a societal shift and it's a change. And five years of experience has given clinicians the ability to understand the process and administer it. And it's given Canadians the opportunity to see that this can be for, for some people, not every person, obviously, for some people, this is the, the best choice for them at end of life. But it's up to them Hel to make that choice. 
Absolutely. Helen, thank you so much for taking some time for us today. We really appreciate it. Please stay safe. Thanks. You too. Take care. That, that is Helen Long, CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada. So there are always going to be concerns. The, the important thing is to make sure the legislation allows an individual to have their individual circumstances looked at, right? Where if you have an individual who is going to initiate this, who is going to say, this is something that I want to have, then there have to be those checks and balances. And we'll see how the debate in this goes if they do get to it today. A dignity filibuster was, or a disability filibuster was started earlier this week. And the idea was to keep this from going. Well, question period's underway in the House of Commons, and we'll see whether we do get any kind of discussion on Bill C-7. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 